Thank you for tuning into the Freedom Church Podcast, where you can catch our Sunday sermon on demand at any time. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on any of the content that's shared every week at our local church in Round Rock, Texas. Here's this week's sermon. For those of you that don't know, I'm the only male in my house. Even our pet dog that died two weeks ago, sad, was a girl. I have one girl in college, another who's a senior, and uh, man, empty nester syndrome is coming, and man, pray for me. My allergies are going to be acting up really bad soon. I love being a dad. I don't want an empty house, but it is what it is, you know? But the nice thing about being a girl dad in a house full of girls that I've learned that if you don't like the mood in one room, you just go to another, you know? I I try to stay on top of things as a dad. I I don't know. I I like to know what's happening the next generation. I I try to stay on top of technology and the language that they're using. The verbiage is always using. There's this word, like, man, Nevaeh was telling me, you got to, man, that guy was rizzing her up. That means, like, he's he's got game. He's got game. He's picking her up. Like, like that's Pastor Michael. He's, man, he's rizzing people up all the time. Yeah. Or, or, uh, I'm just saying, in a godly way. He's not going doing that. He's a godly man. That's a godly man. That's what I'm saying. My bad. Godly man. And another, another word that they use, I don't even know how to use these words. Back in the day, we'll say, you got game, man. That guy's suave if you're really old. You say that. But, uh, or, or, or then, or some people say this, like, man, man, you slayed it. You slayed. Anybody know what that means? That kind of means, like, they, they killed it. That was awesome. That was an incredible, like, like I, I just want to, I love language. And I came across this article as I was talking to my girls about all these new words that have been added to the dictionary recently. A lot of these words don't apply to teenagers, but I just like the article because I like reading new words that have definitions that are unfamiliar to me. So I started playing this game without even knowing it, where I would read a new word and that was added to the dictionary and I was trying to guess it. I thought it was kind of fun, so I kind of want to play with it you, with you this morning. So here's the first word. It's the word phonesia. How many of you guys went, you want to guess what that means? Anybody want to guess what that means? Phonesia? Like, it comes from the two words. It comes from the word phone and amnesia. So I'm thinking, man, it's leaving your phone somewhere and forgetting where you put it and having to look for it. I have a problem with that all the time. But the actual definition of phonesia is this. It's the act of dialing a phone number and forgetting who you're calling at the same time. <laughs> Hello, who is this? Like, you called me. It's a common enough occurrence that they actually have to break a term for this. How many of you guys have ever had phonesia? Raise your hand if you've had phonesia. Okay. Here's another word. It's called disconfect. So let me give you a hint. It comes from the word like candy. It has to do with candy. Yeah. Here's it. It's an attempt to sterilize candy that you dropped on the ground by blowing on it. <laughs> you disconnect, disconfecting it. So this afternoon, drop your kids. I'm oh, blowing it. I'm disconfecting it. Just so you know, I want to give you a new word. Here, here's another word that I like. It's called intoxication. This word is really applicable, especially in the season that we're in. Intoxication is this idea that comes from the euphoria that you're getting a tax return to only realize that it was actually your money in the beginning. (laughs) But this morning, I want to tell you an old word and give you a real biblical definition to it. I believe this word has been hijacked and misunderstood over the years. This word carries a bad name in our day. It's the word repent. 
When we think of repentance, we think of some crazy guy on a street corner holding up a sign, repent, God's mad at you. You guys ever seen that guy right there? Turn or burn. And this is what I'm convinced, Freedom Church, that the devil is trying to make repentance a bad word. And here's the truth I want you to know this morning. Repentance is not a bad word. Actually, it's the most important spiritual discipline you will ever learn. So can we pray before we get into God's word? Because I believe this is a word. Like, I I was supposed to start a series on the parables today. We'll start that next week. But I feel like this is a right now word because God wants to claim the word repent in the lives of his people again. So let's pray. Father, we come before you. Lord, take out this time. Lord, take away all the baggage of this word. Lord, help me to see this word for what it means. God, speak to me about what repent means, Jesus. Amen. I would submit to you that repent is the sweetest and most beautiful word in the entire Bible. Turn to your neighbor right now and tell them, repent. Tell them, tell them repent. And turn to your other neighbor and tell them, what do you need to repent of? Tell them, you know, what do you need? Okay. You guys are doing that a little bit too much. You know, repentance is mentioned over a hundred times in the Bible. A hundred times. And let me tell you this. Repentance is the central message of the Bible. Jesus, when he preached his first message in Matthew 4.17, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's important. What does that mean? Kingdom of the rule of God. Guess what? There's a new kingdom that needs to be established. It needs to be established in your life. A new rule. Who's going to be in control? You've been in control for a long time, but there's good news. God wants to establish his kingdom in you. And it starts with saying you're not in charge. Repent. See, repent is not a bad word. Do you think that our loving, kind, compassionate Savior would open up his first sermon? Repent, you annoying people. Had to come all the way to heaven and earth to die for you. No, that's that's not the tone he said. It was a voice of compassion. It was like this, repent. I got a much better plan. Repent, I have a much better purpose. Repent, you don't have to walk in brokenness. Repent, you don't have to walk in a heartache. Repent, my way is better. Throughout the Bible, God's always calling his people to repent. Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake their ways. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. Jeremiah 3.12, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord, I will frown on you no longer. Only acknowledge your guilt and repent. In Hosea, he says, O Israel, return to the Lord your God. The prophet Joel says, rend your hearts, not your garments. Turn to the Lord, he is gracious and he is slow to anger. Repent. And on and on and on it goes, from Haggai to Zephaniah to Malachi. Every prophet has the same message. In 400 years of silence, when the message of God had not opened, there was another prophet that came on the scene by the name of John the Baptist, and he echoed the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus, before he ascended to heaven, he gave him the marching orders to his disciples in Luke 24, 47. And he says, preach that the repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations. And when the apostles went out and preached in Acts 2, 38, Peter preaches his first sermon. And you want to preach? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. 
Freedom Church, the message has not changed. God has a place of blessing. God has a place of comfort. God has a place of grace. God has a place of mercy. God has a place of new beginnings. And it's in the place of repentance and saying, God, you rule in my life. Let your kingdom come in me. The gospel writer Luke says this, that the angels of heaven rejoice when just one sinner repents. But here's the challenge. Most people don't know, don't know what true repentance is. See, repentance is not only a confession. It's not just saying that you're sorry. Repentance is not a feeling. It's not feeling remorseful. The scriptures say that Judas was remorseful after betraying Jesus, but he didn't repent. It's not an emotion. Let me tell you, repentance is a decision. The word repentance comes from the Greek word metoneia on the screen right here. It's where we get the word metamorphosis. And it literally means this, a change of mind, a change of purpose, a change of action. Let me give you this principle. A repentance that does not change you in life will not save you in death. Repentance is this. I'm going to break it down to three things. It's confession, contrition, and change. Confession is saying, God, you're right and I'm wrong. Contrition, it shows that you grieve over your sin, that you're hurting God and others. It's what the Bible says, godly sorrow leads you to repentance. And then there's change in repentance. Shows that we love God instead of following the things of this world. That's why the gospel writer in Matthew 3, 8 says this, we must show fruits of our repentance. Change needs to take place. Theologian Rosaria Butterfield said this, Repentance is a bittersweet business. Repentance is not just a conversion exercise. It's the posture of a Christian. Wow. The Christian learns how to melt the will into God's. Repentance feels like death because it is. The you that once was is no longer, even if your feelings remain. So I'm going to ask you a question this morning. And I don't want you to raise your hand. I don't want you to look around at your neighbor. I want you to focus on me because I'm setting you up, okay? So I'm just telling you in advance, I'm setting you up. Don't raise your hand, what I'm about to say. Because you're going to want to raise your hand, but don't raise it. I'm setting you up. Don't get mad at me if you fall for it, okay? So here's the question. How many of you hate correction? How many of you hate to be corrected? See one hand going up. (laughs) There's a scripture for you. Proverbs 12.1. Hugh correction is stupid. Don't you like that God's just direct and tells you like it is? And this morning, we're going to look at a story when King David was corrected. It's a picture of true biblical repentance. The story is found in 2 Samuel 12. It's the story of King David repenting after being caught in the act of adultery. And it was David's repentant heart that made him a God, man after God's own heart. What set David apart was he knew how to repent. His repentance paved the way for God's restoration and blessing on his life. I always liken it like this. We can't really think of Saul's sin. We all know David's sin. See, God isn't intimidated by our sin. He is wondering, can we repent in the midst of our sin? In 2 Samuel 12, Let me give you a little bit of background. This is about a year after David slid into Bathsheba's DMs and started that infamous affair. We know that happened because 
The child from that affair had just been born. And back in those days, it took nine months between when a couple had sex to the birth of that baby. That's why I went to Bible college to give you type of insight and background right there. (laughs) And here in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the prophet Nathan requests an audience with David and says, David, I've heard something that's bothered me and I want you to know about it. And Nathan is a master storyteller. He's going to get David's emotions into it, and he's going to hit him in an incredible way. And, and here is what's going to happen. Nobody knew about the sin other than David, Bathsheba, and a few accomplices. But now the prophet Nathan is about to go TMZ on David and let the whole nation know about his dirty laundry. And at this time, let me just tell you, David is a national hero. Everybody loves him. He's on every Wheaties box with a slingshot like that. In verse 1, here he goes, and the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich, the other poor. Just listen to the story this says. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It was like their pet. He, and it, He used it to eat of his morsel and his drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Wow. Now there was a traveler. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had him come. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come. (laughs) David's ticked off. Look at verse 10. Then David's anger was greatly kindled. He's a man of passion. This guy killed Goliath. He was like a UFC fighter. You don't mess with David. And as the Lord lives, the man who has done this, he says, deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing because he had no compassion. He pronounces his judgment. And Nathan looks at David. And in the most direct sermon application ever in verse 7, he says this. Nathan said to David, you are that man. What I would have given to be in that moment. Can you imagine the tension? You could cut it with a knife. Here's the prophet approaching the most powerful king. In a moment, he could have his soldiers released. He could have plunged him and killed him and said, you're a false prophet. Get away. I don't know how long it took. I don't know if he had an awkward pause. I don't know what happened, but there was so much tension in this moment. It's the most important moment in the life of David. What's he going to do? Is he going to repent or is he going to rebel? Then Nathan gives him one last punch. He says, thus saith the Lord God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little, I would have added so much more. And then verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And David hears this and he breaks. He knows he's sinned against God. He knows he broke the heart of God. And then David shocks everyone in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. In front of the entire nation, he confesses adultery, murder, and a cover-up. See, everybody sins. 
It's what you do when you're confronted with your sin that makes the difference between your restoration or ruin. When we're confronted with our sin, I want to give you five ways that most people deal with sin. First thing is we do is we hide our sin. We deny it. We try to cover it up. It's what David did at the beginning. See, God's goal is not just to uncover your sin, but ultimately it's to uncover it, bring it out of the open so we can cover it with the blood of Jesus and his mercy and his grace. But it's so easy to cover our mistakes. I remember when I was six, in sixth grade and my aunt invited us, me and my, bro, me and my, my uh, cousin at the time, to go to the Bigfoot Monster Trucks. How many of you guys remember Bigfoot Monster Trucks? I've never been there. There's these big old trucks that just smash cars and, yeah, boy, you love that. It's like awesome. So she picked me up early that day. She went to the office, and me and her son were playing, and we're typical boys. We're wrestling, and we break her designer glasses. So we do what any 12-year-olds would do. If you broke your designer glasses, we got him. We put him in a trash can, put him in another trash can, put him in another trash can, and threw him in the dumpster. And then when it was time to leave, she came out. She asked, have you seen my glasses? And we're like, what glasses? So she begins looking, and we're looking with her. It's not underneath the cow. Give me the car keys. It's not in the car. Where is it? So we're literally spending 30 minutes looking for her glasses. But she had a coworker who was working out to lunch. And he saw our little shenanigans that was going on that day. And he says, they broke your glasses. And when my aunt found out, she wasn't mad about breaking the glasses. That's what boys do. She was mad about the cover-up. And guess what happened? To this day, I still haven't seen Bigfoot. (laughs) The truth always comes out. Let me say that. The truth always comes out. Sin grows in darkness, but the light brings healing. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, God makes it public. Next thing we do is we rationalize sin. It's not really hurting anybody. It's just a small thing. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's living together. I can't help it. My desires are too strong. I was born this way. My job doesn't pay me enough, so it's rightfully mine. My wife won't, so I will. Number three, we blame shift. If you have multiple kids and you're a parent, you know this. I can't tell you how many times I'm driving down the road, even with teenage girls and the girls are fighting back there says girls stop it and Nevaeh's all Alana licked me and Nevaeh's all and Alana's all she has her leg and they're always blaming each other right how many parents would say amen we all that's what Adam did it's the woman she gave me that and we say you don't understand my situation my mom wasn't nurturing my dad was absent my marriage is really bad Number, the fourth thing we do is we offer God conditional obedience. God, I'll do this if you'll do this. This is what Adam and Eve did. This is what, this is what King Saul did. But when David is confronted with his sin, this is what he refused to do. Here's the fifth option when we're confronted with our sin. We can repent. When David was confronted, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Here's what I want to let you know about true repentance. True repentance takes full responsibility. Something that doesn't happen in our culture. We want to blame everybody else. He didn't blame Bathsheba for taking a bath. He didn't rationalize behavior by saying, man, I was having a bad day. I have these desires. It's the way God made him know. He says this, I did it. I sinned against God. I own it. I'll quit hiding it. I'm not going to excuse it. And as the nation finds out, they're shocked. 
Can you imagine trying to build regain trust, especially in a patriarchal society with a monarch that had total power and it's no democracy and you can't kick him out of the kingdom? And this takes place. And the nation's healing. And they go back to worship and they're worshiping. And one day, King David comes to worship at the temple. And he gives the worship leader a song, Psalms 51. The psalm has a caption in your Bible. If you, it's the choir master. This was a choir song. This is a song that they would sing during worship. And it was a song about his failure and about his repentance. Because David didn't want to hide it. Because David was more concerned with being right with God than right with man. He wrote a song about his greatest failure and repentance to God. And this psalm gives us internal workings of what true repentance is. Psalms 51 verse 1, he says this, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Notice the basis for David's plea for repentance. Where is his hope? On the mercy of God, on the steadfast love of God. Here is what it is. True repentance calls on God's mercy. It's not in his past righteousness. Hey, God, I I killed Goliath for you back in the day. He's not trying to bargain with God, trying to make it a bunch of promises. That's what we do. Hey, God, if you'll get me off the hook on this, then I promise I'll serve you the rest of my life. God puts all his hope in one place. He puts all his hope in one basket. The mercy of God. And that's a great place to be. Number three, true repentance takes sin very serious. He says, for I know my transgressions. And he says, my sin is ever before me. And he says this, against you, and notice this double word, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David is repetitive about acknowledging his sin. The reputation, you, you, in Hebrew indicates, indicates an intensity of emotion. You, God, you, After all you've given me, after all you've shown me, after all you mercy, it's you that I've sinned. David doesn't minimize his sin. Is it true? Really, David? What about Bathsheba? Didn't you sin against her? You violated her. You hurt her. You destroyed her family, killed her husband. What about Uriah? That was supposed to be your friend. You destroyed his life. You took his... Didn't you sin against them? No, this is deep, and I don't want you to forget this. This is so important. When we sin, it's ultimately against God. It's the heart of true repentance. David, David realizes his sin against, against God. And all our sin is ultimately against God. Martin Luther, the reformer, would say this. That the reason we break every other commandment is because we break the first commandment, which says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. The reason we need stuff is because God's not enough. The reason we need an adulterous uh, 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 relationship is because God's not enough. David says, why did I need Bathsheba's beauty? Why did my soul have such an incredible suction to go after her? I needed her arms because, God, I wasn't in your arms. That's what he's saying. David committed the sin of sexual immorality, murder, and lying. And there's not one single direct word that mentions any of those those three things in Psalms 51. Why? Because those specific sins are not the cause. It's just the symptom. That's why he wrote, verse 12, restore to me the joy of my salvation. David would write earlier, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. Let me tell you, your problem is not you have a big sex drive. Your problem is not you have a big ego. 
Your problem is not you want nice things and greed or your evil actions. Those are just symptoms. The main issue is you lack joy in your salvation with Christ. When that joy fades, we start clicking pornography. When that joy fades, we start dreaming about everything else than the mission of God. We start dreaming about all these other things that don't matter. We only think about ourselves. When that joy fades, we start putting our eyes on money and earthly pleasures. That's why Thomas Aquinas in the 12th century, he wrote this, man cannot live without joy. Therefore, when he is deprived from true spiritual joys, it is necessary that he become addicted to carnal pleasures. Because David didn't have joy in Jesus and God. He looked from joy to other places. That's why George Mueller said the most important thing that you can ever do every morning is pray yourself happy in the Lord. To get to a place, kind of like we're singing, that Jesus, you are my one thing. You are the only thing that matters. Is your struggle with sin? It's not about willpower. It's not about trying to figure things out. It's about putting yourself in a place where he truly is the one thing that will break every power in your life. It's what the Puritans called the expulsive power of a brand new affection. And what it means, if when you're a kid, you were in the monkey bars, right? And when you're in the monkey bars, you'd swing from one place to another place. And what happens is we, there's a grip on us. I don't know what that grip is. We all have different grip. And something has a grip on us. And the only way to let go of this grip is to find something that you hold on to that's greater than that grip. And, and that's what it is. You're saying, Jesus, man, you know what? My sex, pornography, greed, alcohol, addiction had a grip on me, but I am grabbing a hold of something that's far greater. And when I grab a hold of Jesus, everything else loses its power because that's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what David is telling us here. This is not moralism. This is not dead religion. This is about a relationship with the living God. Here's the final point as the band comes up. True repentance doesn't desire forgiveness. It desires God. Repentance leads you more than just wanting forgiveness. It desires renewal. That's why repentance always is the precursor to revival. No revival has happened without repentance. Read every revival, even reports of the Asbury revival. It started with repentance. And that's what David says in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart. Oh God, renew. It's a cry for revival. Renew a right spirit within me. And I love verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. You see David's heart? He wants intimacy with God. David wants the Lord over his wealth, over his power, over his prosperity. Way different if you look at the story of Saul. Saul, when he sinned, he says, oh, come with me, the elders. I want to look in front of the people. Don't take the kingdom. David says, okay, I had money, but it doesn't satisfy. I've had prestige. It doesn't satisfy. Lord, yeah, I can have everything, but if I don't have your presence, he doesn't ask to still be king. He doesn't still ask to have prestige. He asks for one thing. God, I cannot live without your presence. That's what he's saying. And what's beautiful, what's interesting to me, is David and Bathsheba would have several sons. And one of their sons, you know what they would name him? Solomon, yes, but Nathan. In honor of the prophet who called out their sin. 
they saw that moment as a moment that identified them. And they would name one of their sons, Nathan. What's beautiful to me is David would use Bathsheba from all of, God would use Bathsheba from all of David's wives to bring forth the lineage of Jesus, of Jesus, the son of David, to demonstrate his grace and mercy through a repentant heart. See, repentance is a place of freedom. Repentance is a place of new life. Repentance is a place of blessing. Repentance is a place of brand new beginnings. But you got to let go of what you're holding on to. And you got to grab a hold of Jesus. You got to be able to sing, give me Jesus. And, and, and I can't help with this, but I, I want you to notice the gospel in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Nathan stands before David and says, you are that man. When Pilate stood before Jesus, he says, behold the man. To every one of us, the law, the Ten Commandments points to us that we are that man, that we are guilty. At the cross, Jesus was accused of being the man in our place. And the gospel says he stood there silent. He consented to our guilt and he died. And in this story, Nathan tells David he won't die, but his descendant will. He had an innocent son who died in David's place. Do you see the picture that is given to us? David lives because one of his innocent descendants would die in his place. Jesus, the son of David, would ultimately come and he would say, when Benito, with the finger of the judgment and God, the enemy, would, and, the, and the law would point to me and says, you're guilty, you are that man. Jesus said, yes, you are, but I'm getting out of the way and I'm going to die in your place. And if you would come to me, you can have a brand new life. There's only two ways to respond to this sermon. Repent or resist. When you yield to sin, it gets stronger. It becomes more captivating, more satisfying. You cannot let go. But when you repent, the grip of sin is released. Want anybody bow your head and close your eyes? Holy One of Israel, I know you put this message on my heart. And you're calling people to you. I know repentance is not just a one-time thing. It's a lifestyle. Martin Luther says it's the whole life of the believer. Speak to us of areas that we're holding on to. Lord, for some of us, it might be a pornography addiction. For all of some of us, it might be, Lord, a relationship. For others, it might be greed. For some of us, Lord, we, we can't trust God and tithe. I don't know what it is, Lord. Worry, anxiety. Lord, we hear about revivals happening everywhere. That's awesome, but Lord, we want it to happen in us. Do it in me. It starts with repentance. I want everybody to stand to your feet. In a message like this, I think every one of us probably need to repent. Here's what I want to do. We're going to sing this song, Give Me Jesus. But I'm going to open up the front. If you just want to come to the front and just kneel and pray, we're not going to have a prayer team. We're not going to hype it up. It's between you and the Lord. And I just want you to have a moment of repenting of whatever it is that you need to let go of. Holy Spirit's already speaking to you. He's showing you. Sometimes you got to step out where you're at and go. Maybe just right there as we sing this song. But what we're doing is repenting and saying, God, I want Jesus more than whatever's holding me back. So as this song is singing, as we sing this song, as we close with this song, if you want to come to the front, it's open to you. Let's repent before the Lord. Thanks again for listening to the Freedom Church podcast. We hope that you were inspired and motivated to continue to grow in your faith. Don't forget to subscribe and share with others.